Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. The reality is that they need process and structure to eliminate the noise and to create a space for solving really, really deep, challenging problems. They actually want the process or the part that is mundane and boring and disruptive. Uh, So as they discussed about what's making their life harder than it needs to be, we're coming back to a lack of process, a lack of uniformity, a lack of clear communication channels between themselves or between other departments. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast, brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, Madalena Tanasi, CTO at Calibra, shares her leadership journey transitioning between engineering and operations and all of the lessons that transfer between those two different experiences. We cover strategies to improve engineering efficiency within your org, factors to consider when scaling, frameworks to address concerns about culture while scaling, Calibra's new product introduction process, plus all about how to maximize your ROI with R&D. Let me introduce you to Madalena. At Calibra, Madalena leads the software engineering, architecture, production engineering, test engineering, and security activities. Prior to Calibra, she was the engineering VP for Metadata Solutions Unified Platform Organization, an organization she built from the ground up and led since 2010. Madalena has been recognized as one of the top 25 software CTOs of 2023 by the Software Report. Enjoy our conversation with Madalena Tanasi. Well, Jerry and I were talking kind of offline before this, and one of the things we were really excited to get into was you, the unique elements of your career journey in that your career journey has taken some interesting twists and turns from engineering to operations and then back to engineering. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that career journey and how you ended up as CTO at Calibra. Talk to us a little bit more about what that unexpected career journey has been like for you. Unexpected is definitely the right word than how most people that know me would describe it, especially the move at Libra. But there is a bigger theme with how I function and what's important for me that is important to give the background to how I ended up where I am. I'm a very mission-oriented person and many of my career moves have been around providing value. So I'm not a planner. Many people that speak with me ask me, how was your plan? How did you get to be a CTO relatively early in the career? And There is no big grand plan. If I'm really honest, I didn't even think about being a CTO until I was presented with the opportunity and I had to make a relatively quick decision, do I want this or not? Most of my changes have been around where the biggest learning opportunity was. And I'm most definitely not a jumper. I uh, spent before Culebra 11 and a half years at a company called Medidata. It's the leading SaaS provider for clinical trials. It's been a life-changing time for me. Beyond the reality of, you know, just waking up every morning knowing that you're going to help cure cancer or Alzheimer or get a 
vaccine like Moderna approved. That job for me really, really influenced how I function and what's super important. You know that if you make a mistake, literally, you are going to impact people's life. People could die or in less impactful situations, you could compromise a decade-long clinical trial. So it requires a huge sense of responsibility. And that's for me been very, very important. I started there as an engineer in 2008, working on one of their big replatforming projects. By the end of it, I was VP of engineering for the platform group, which was a pretty large sub-organization in uh, Medidata's engineering. And if you look at my LinkedIn profile, it might look like there was a very, very straight line from engineer to VP of engineering. But the reality is that there was a lot of zigzagging and changing projects and changing groups and trying and learning and raising the hand to all kinds of unexpected opportunities or counterintuitives. So my move to operations at Colibra is not that much out of character as it was one of the biggest pivots that I've done in my career. In uh, 2019, Medidata was acquired by Dassault Systems. And as it happens in those circumstances, there was a significant change in leadership. That was a moment for me to think, hey, what do I want to do? As I thought about it, I realized that maybe it's time for a change. I realized that for me, it's super important that I'm not typecast as a life sciences person. I'm a software engineer. I want to solve big work problems. This one happened to be one of the many problems that I could solve, but I'm not a pharma person as invested as I am in the mission. I want to work on something that is going to be relevant in 10 years. And I want to be at a company with a good culture. And I also want to make a difference. And when I stumbled upon a Colibra opportunity, it wasn't an engineering opportunity. It was something made up title, Operations and Excellence. Chief Product Officer was looking for someone that could help scale It's like we are at this junction point. We have grown exponentially in 2019. We really need to scale. We recognize that what has got us here is not what's going to get us to double again. And we need someone that has seen that growth that can teach us how to move from this point to the next one and be in between product and engineering and also move us on the SaaS journey. So someone with SaaS experience. And I realized that, hey, like the product, I really like uh, what Colibra is trying to do there. Coincidentally, I spent five last five years of my career building uh, something very similar to Colibra's product. And then uh, the culture. Colibra is special. Colibra is a European company that is dual headquarters in US. There is an incredible diversity, including in leadership, and diversity is really very appreciated and supported. And one, one very important example is that myself and uh, our chief product officer both are women. It's fairly uncommon to have two women in product and engineering leadership, and we are both promoted from within. And that sentiment that I had at the interview that this is a special company has been repeated again and again. So it was okay for me to take a role that was different. Give up on engineering, do operations, and really focus on scaling the company. And one year into that journey, of course, the big part of the foundation of that scaling was done. I started putting my nose into engineering matters as that's my <laughs> my skill. And people started noticing, it's like, hey, you know what you're doing on engineering. So maybe it's time for your role to evolve. And I was presented with, we think we need a CTO and we'd like you to give it a try. And it's like, sure, why not? It's not the first time we heard a story like this where on the surface, you have really clear goal being a CTO at an immediate company. And now you kind of uh, meeting from where you were to, to that goal. But actually underneath, it happens, as you said, a lot of zigzags and really just focusing on not having a goal in mind at all, but really focusing on what matters to you and follow that instinct and being very intentional of navigating the career path. I think that many times lead to really unexpected but good results. 
and pursue that share and that story. Indeed. Yeah. I, I didn't really plan it. That's the honest answer. Yeah. I was doing payments for many, many years and a natural career transition after being in that payment industry for many years to go to a, a fintech company, but that's not really what I want to do. And so I can really resonate on that trip pivot that they mentioned. I had a couple of follow-up questions, Madalena. What stood out to you about the opportunity to jump into operations and to focus on sort of building out the scaling, the systems and the processes? Like when you were evaluating that opportunity, like what were some of the experiences that stood out to you as exciting or unique at that moment? I think it's back to making an impact and helping something that I felt was worthwhile. Colibra at that point was right in between startup and scale-up stage. And I knew that what they are trying to build, what they've built and what they are trying to grow and expand, it's worth it. It's something that everybody needs. It's something that I needed for a long time and I had to build myself because I didn't know that there was something out there. And I realized having seen scale-up several times in my career that what has got them successful, what has got them to that point is very different than what they need to go to the next level and truly become the leader in the market. And I knew what that is and I, I wanted to help. And I, it didn't really matter to me that I'm going to help by leading engineering and uh, helping with the technology part. Honestly, at that point, they needed more help with setting up the operations, setting up the process, really going from pirate to Navy, really having that uniformity and discipline that is needed to double or triple every year. Along that note, I think it'd be really interesting to explore some of the perspectives and lessons you learned from that experience of, of helping Calibra scale up. How do you approach setting up product and engineering teams for scale and advancing the company mission to double or triple or get to that next level? Are there certain perspectives that you leaned on or any mechanics or tactics that were really powerful for you in that experience? I would say that every transformation is different. And having done a few of them, there are a few dimensions that I like to consider before embarking on a project. Each one is, it's a big, big project. It's a multi-year project and you need to be sure that you want to get into it before starting. And I'm thinking about a number of things when, when I embark on such project. First of all is what's the stage of the company and what's the stage of the team? Are you speaking about moving from a startup, you know, 20, 30 people to uh, hundreds of people? Are you already at the point where you're past that phase and you're in a scale-up mode? Are you an established company and you're trying to scale a sub-organization or a department? The other dimension that is super important before you start is do you have the right people? And the right people vary depending on what's that stage and where you are and where you want to go. You need people that are capable of keeping the lights on and really understand this phase, but also that have a very good understanding where we are going and ideally some experience on how the end state looks like. And no transformation can be done alone. You need those champions, those captains to support and drive and lead and jump when, when things are going differently than expected. Third, you need executive support, real, real executive support, not just the theoretical one. Like you go and you speak with everyone out there and they would say, we want to be set up for scale and we want to grow and we want to be ready for the next phase when that next phase hits us. But you really need to go deeper before you say yes to such project. You need to say, do you really understand what that means? Do you understand to what extent your culture will change? Do you understand how much it's going to cost? And do you understand how long it's going to take? Because there is no, you know, magic wand. There is no quick fix to go from something that is small to something that is big, from something that is chaotic to something that is structured. And the later you start, the more difficult it is, because sometimes you realize that you need that scalability when you're a little bit too big 
for that to be organic or not forced. Uh, and lastly, and that's the part that many people maybe don't think enough, is the, the human part, the human element. It's really challenging to change a culture. And it can be, for some people, uh, to some extent, traumatic. In, in a startup, you have those superstars and they are amazing and they perform. And then through this transformation, you realize that they are struggling or they really can't keep up. And it's like, what happened? And there is a lot to going from 30 people to 60 people to 120 people to 1,000 people and doing that like quarter over quarter or even year after year. Uh, one, one article that I've referenced when I've had this conversation just to give, uh, you know, the leaders that I was speaking with is, I think it's called uh, Give Away Your Legos. I, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It really has this analogy on how when you grow up, you have the same emotional reaction you have when you do child play and someone is trying to take away your Legos. At the very <laughs> beginning, when you open that Lego box, you're super excited. It's like, oh, so many Lego pieces. We can do so many, so many things. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be exciting. And then you start working on it and you realize that, hey, this is a little bit too hard. I need to, I need some help. And then help is coming. And then you start having this anxiety and this panic. Wait a minute. Is this person going to take my, my job? Are they going to mess it up? Are they maybe going to do it better than me and I'm going to be irrelevant? And there is like, there are all kind of weird behaviors that come into play as you scale. Not to mention the effort to recruit, to onboard, to assimilate, to deal with attrition. And uh, it's a big deal. I would say that that's the part that you often underestimate, but it's not to be underestimated. So these are the four dimensions that I typically consider uh, before saying yes to such project. The Legos comment really resonated. I think there's been exchanges between Jerry and I where we're trying to divvy up responsibility for certain projects and I definitely will have that emotional reaction like the you know the irrational emotional reaction of you know the possessiveness over a certain responsibility so that definitely resonated Jerry you had a you had a follow up question do you have examples of those large scale projects uh, definitely that that's not entirely a theoretical conversation, the one that I presented. It's pretty much the conversation that I embarked with with Culibra's leadership before starting. Because you don't make a change like the change that I made that was seen as honestly crazy by a lot of people that know me before knowing exactly what you're getting into. One example that I, I can give and a story that I can describe is really the transformation of Culibra from what was a very different company at the beginning of 2020 from what it is now. And, and Culibra was in that scale-up phase, pretty established in terms of product, pretty established in terms of go-to-market strategies, a very good uh, set of customers, and also coming out of what was an absolutely spectacular 2019 that got uh, the company to grow in every aspect really, really fast and to some extent organically and without having had a plan. It was a very interesting um, situation to get into because we were a little bit too big. Going back to that article, there is a moment when you embark on this. It's usually when you're in the 100, 200 people, that's when you form your culture and it's the ideal point to have this conversation. At that point, Culibra was close to 700. So a little bit on, at the end of the next stage. And I had to really think through what do I approach? Uh, which part I pick up first? And that's the challenge when you prepare a scale up scale. There are way, way too many things that you could do. And it's super important to pick up the single most important one and do that first and then do another one and do another one. For me, in um, that role that I had with between product and engineering was setting up the foundation and uniformity between how various engineering groups operate and moving from what was a misunderstood 
Spotify model through Agile and a form of Agile that was appropriate for a B2B, especially when you operate in the enterprise space. What does it look like? Because the Spotify model has been popular uh, in the past and adopted by different companies. And I'm curious that adapting to Clipper's own team and focus. So how that Agile look like? I'm sure the audience will be curious to learn about. So, so the Spotify model is actually very, very popular in Europe. Um, as I said, Colibra is at the original European company. It started in Belgium and then expanded in few European countries in Poland and, and Czech before growing into US. And I learned a lot more about the variations of Spotify model through Colibra. What I'm saying is misunderstood. There are a lot of really, really good principles there. That part of having a team's autonomy and setting them up for success is not entirely incompatible with Agile. But I do believe that you need to have some sort of guardrails and some sort of structure and framework to have those independent units operate in a way that it's cohesive. You you can put them back together, uh, for lack of a better word. And the way it was at Colibra, Colibra started with one product and then there were a few other products around it, but it wasn't necessarily from the architecture point of view intended to be a platform at the very beginning of it. And those teams had a lot of autonomy. They had very different uh, set of tools, had very different flavors of Agile. They were measuring very different things. And as I looked at it and I said, okay, we want to be SaaS, we want to be a platform, there was that need for a shared framework and uniformity and aligning those flavors to some extent. And I, I wanted to keep that innovative spirit and what's super important on Colibra's DNA, like that entrepreneurial spirit that is very much part of the Spotify model, where you empower people to drive their missions and be in charge of their destiny. But also I needed that accountability and discipline. I had a vision in mind on how a uniform framework would look. But the way I tell people that, hey, what got you successful here is not going to take you to the next level, I needed to apply that to myself. I couldn't assume that necessarily that model that I had in mind and has worked in my past is going to be the appropriate one for, for Colibra. So there, it was a lot of trial and error and rinse and repeat and try and, and iterate. But back then we had about 10 engineering teams. So interviewed every single one and said, describe to me what's your development process, your agile process, and put them on a matrix and kind of identify what are the differences between where they are and my mental model. And after completing that interview, I really looked at what was the closest and what were the differences and recalibrated my target state, then identify which is the team that is the closest that could be a champion, could be a prototype, and which team can move with very little intervention by just a little bit of guidance, and which team needs serious intervention and will have to give up a lot of their Legos because, no, we are not going to use this tool anymore. We are all going to standardize on Jira. Like no Trello, no Asana, no spreadsheets. That was like my very first project, and it was foundational. In terms of flavor of, of Agile. We kind of let go, I have to say, of the Spotify model. I, I, I actually spoke with a number of people about Spotify model and even Spotify themselves have given up on it and, and kept just some of the core principles, which are good. We are more pure Agile than Spotify model now, three years later. First step is to get aligned uh, on the maybe process and tools across different team because now it's a it's a unified platform and you know to innovate continuously people need to get on the same page on that as you said like 
and can break people into small team, but can bring them back as needed. And the leveraging the same tool and process, speaking the same language is really important. It's really important also as you're thinking about dependency management and measuring and during efficiency and, and trying to understand if a big project that requires multiple teams is going to come together and when. It's it's very difficult to operate as a platform and in sync if there is such a huge deviation of methodologies and tools and, yeah, and processes. Yeah, yeah. And part of the challenge is because uh, that happened a little bit too late compared to the typical startup at the similar trajectory, I guess, as, as you mentioned, in terms of the company size. So I, I'm sure it's more challenging. <laughs> well, definitely there were some challenges. I would say that resistance was the hardest. Um, there were some pretty ingrained opinions out there. And that part of it, we are innovative and we need to really move fast. And all this is making us too bureaucratic and too slow and too process oriented was real. But then another one that comes to mind is executive anxiety, for lack of a better word. As much as I try to prepare everyone that, hey, this is going to be a long journey, it's going to be in waves, come and go, and uh, sometimes you feel good about it, sometimes you feel bad about it, we weren't prepared. So there was a lot of, hey, we're moving too fast because people had anxiety and they're complaining and they're saying, like, we really can't keep up with all this change. But then it was like, wait, are we there yet? How long is it going to take? So that, that was another, another interesting challenge. The last one that I think it was made worse by the pandemic, the fact that we were for my first year and a half at Culibra fully remote is really communication. Culibra was very, very in-person before the pandemic and it was this complete change to virtual. And not a lot of the processes and tools and communication channels were set up for at-scale communication, especially of pretty significant changes. So I had to constantly iterate on what's the right way to communicate, which channel is going to work. Some people are using Slack, some people are using emails, some people like to be communicated in person. It was another pretty uh, significant challenge. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Going back to the second challenge, so navigating people's expectation, and there are the good days, the bad days, and despite the how much expectation you set up upfront, um, there will be some, I guess, challenges as people can adjust to this new process. There might be also a feeling of lack of certainty, like because it's a long-running project. How do you navigate all that? Because it takes a lot of patience and navigation, and it's seemed to be a big deal for a lot of people. When I put up my mind to something, I am relentless. I have my days when it feels like, okay, this is really, really hard. I might give up, but I am fundamentally relentless and I'm, I'm extremely resilient. And especially when I think that it's the right thing and it's worthwhile. And especially when I, I have the support that I need. Yes, it takes patience. It takes a lot of explaining. It, the most extreme team thing that I did was very, very deep listening session that I did in the summer of 2021. It was right after moving from my operations role into the CTO role. And I realized that there are all these people, the engineers, who knew me from the operations angle, but didn't know me as a technologist, as an engineering leader. And suddenly they all had to report to this person that 
honestly, they probably resented because I was coming with the process. And I was saying, you're going to do this. And I was the process person. And suddenly it's like you're reporting into the process person. And I realized that it's super important for them to know me as a technologist. I went to Europe for a few months and I was remote, but I was in Europe. So I was on the same time zone and I scheduled with every single team a listening session. And it was to some extent scripted. I was asking what's working, what's your mission? Do you understand your mission as a team? What's working, what's easy and what's more difficult than it needs to be? And this was just a conversation starter. And I prepared before every meeting. I knew every single person in that meeting. I knew who they are. I knew as much as I could find out about their history. I knew their names I knew how long they've been at the company. And I did that for two months. Every day I would have like four hours of meetings and I met every single team. And by the end of it, they knew me and I knew them and they trusted me and they knew that I'm going to listen when they are going to say something and not just going to be like cracked down and suddenly from what they perceived as this highly innovative independent company is going to be all process. I also had that reputation of coming from a highly regulated industry. So as you can imagine, there was like a lot of anxiety on how that's going to look. I love how you you shattered that conception with listening. And those questions that you asked were so powerful. It, was there any like interesting insight like from doing that listening tour that has stood out to you that has kind of informed the approach that you've taken with different elements of your role? One interesting um, finding was that there was, as people in, in a team, they were speaking about what their mission, they found that they themselves were not entirely aligned about what their mission was as a team. Some people are thinking about how they fit into the engineering organization or how they fit into a group or how they contribute to the product. So it was actually a big revelation for them. And for me, it was that it was a story that was repeating from team to team. And it goes back to that autonomy without guardrails, without necessarily a, a big grand vision to align around. And uh, another surprise was that when it came to what's harder than it needs to be, there was actually surprising alignment between various engineering teams. Engineers are these self-proclaimed rebels who say that we, we want nothing in our way. We want to be in our room, desk, whatever, and innovate and be left alone. And we can't be bothered with process. But the reality is that they need process and structure to eliminate the noise and to create a space for solving really, really deep challenging problems. They actually want the process or the part that is mundane and boring and disruptive. Uh, so as they discussed about what's making their life harder than it needs to be, we're coming back to a lack of process, a lack of uniformity, a lack of clear communication channels between themselves or between other departments. So so those were two, two interesting uh, findings from that listening session, yeah. Those are great. I have one more f follow-up question. Um, and this is more when you were talking about, you know, through through some of the changes that were implemented to help with scaling up. One of the common things that can oftentimes come up is like, well, we want to preserve our culture. And I thought that you had a really interesting way in which you you talked about preserving culture with your teams. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your advice for when an organization is scaling and there's inherent change with that scaling. Like how did you how did you talk about or address like that consideration around culture? That's a great question. And, and I think it's a very important conversation to have early on when you embark on this kind of project with the leadership team and, and secure alignment, because there is this idea that we are going to grow and we are going to transform, but we are going to keep our culture and we are going to keep our DNA. The reality is that there is going to be a change and it's going to be an impactful change. And you can't just have a blanket statement that I'm going to keep my culture and my DNA. You need to go a little bit deeper and figure out which parts of your culture are the ones that make up your DNA that you really, really want to protect. And and which parts of your culture 
you actually don't want to keep and you should be very intentional about changing. And in Colibra's case, there was that really, really innovative and entrepreneurial and driven part of the culture and very customer-centric part of the culture that we wanted to protect and needed to work very intentionally around. But then there was that part of accepting some structure and accepting some discipline and being accountable to each other and being accountable to uh, the customer, which is also a big part of SaaS transformation, right? Like, so it's not necessarily about, it, it was a missing element to some extent, because when you're a software vendor and you give customers an installer and they deal with it themselves, it's very different than when you're SaaS and you provide them a service and you need to think about how you're going to support it or uh, monitor it, how much it's going to cost to operate it and so on. So that part of accountability to the customer was a little bit of a new one that needed to be nurtured as we transform from on-prem to SaaS. Madalena, one of the things that's on the top of a lot of folks' mind right now with just kind of the the global economic environment that we've been operating in, there's been a lot of different changes that folks have had to make, pivots to strategy, headcount teams, reorganizations, and things like that. And so engineering efficiency is definitely on the top of mind of a lot of folks. But I think there's also some ways that people have approached that is by, you know, doubling down and focusing on like core feature sets. Um, but I think there's also still this desire to want to continue to invest in R&D and new products and new features and exploratory projects, but in a more efficient way. And so I was wondering if you could share, what are you thinking about? Like, what are some of your perspectives right now or strategies when you're thinking about getting the most out of your R&D budget or approaching engineering in an efficient way? What's going through your mind? What are some perspectives that you have there? My main perspective here is that uh, measuring engineering uh, efficiency and productivity is notoriously hard. Uh, and there are all kinds of tools out there that are trying to uh, solve this problem and get you to have a better insight into how efficient your engineering organization is. And, you know, you can look at velocity and productivity and where your work goes. But as soon as you publish some sort of metrics, there's going to be one or other engineer there that's going to try to figure out how to game the system. And they're going to focus more on making the metric look good than the sentiment behind it. And, and I think it goes back to that engineer's rebels they don't like to be controlled and they don't like a process. And as soon as they feel that they are too constrained by process, they get creative in the wrong way. I would say that the best way to measure engineering efficiency is really through impact. For me, it's really important. Of course, I'm looking at all those metrics. I want to know uh, how predictable you are. I want to know if our agile metrics are in order. And of course, you want a project to be finished in time, on budget, and to specs. But there is this other part of it that really matters. Did it hit the mark? All those assumptions, when you embarked on this project, you had some assumptions around the customer satisfaction or the revenue that you're going to get from it. And you had some assumption about how much it's going to cost to own it and operate it and how long it's going to take to get your return on investment. And, and these are some things that you need to really plan that you want to measure. So from the very beginning through the development process, you put the right logging, monitoring and metrics in place. So when it's released, you really start measuring and you need to have patience. And I think ultimately engineering is there to support the business. Another part that I would mention in this context is really how much of your R&D is in fact R&D. Like when you're looking at where your time goes, it's typically support and bugs. It's technical work of the type of replatforming or refactoring. It's technical work supporting new features and new features. 
And only the last two categories of it are through R&D. Everything else is like just cost of ownership, cost of maintenance. And when people are looking like how much is my R&D cost and my R&D budget, you look holistic. It's like how much my engineering organization costs. And I think sometimes you need to be a little bit honest about how much of that cost is in fact R&D. And if you find yourself having cost of ownership, cost of operating be too high, maybe you need to invest through R&D to, to get that lower. Yeah, I'm curious that was a good balance between cost of ownership and the true R&D ratio-wise, just a rough numbers for people to make sense of it. The, the numbers that I would give you are the ones that are in, in the public domain. I, I don't think that it's necessarily something that you would have be the same for every single company because there is a great variation between each company's landscape. For Colibra, for example, we are multi-cloud. We are hosting our platform in um, AWS, GCP, and Azure. And that comes with some overhead that might not be typical to a company that is just in one cloud. So I wouldn't necessarily think that my reality is the norm to follow. And it also very much depends on where you are. Are you in a slow growth? Are you in a flat growth? Are you in a hyper growth? There is nuance there. But when it comes to how much of your engineering work goes, goes towards one type of uh, work or another, that's where I have, you know, a more firm opinion. In a healthy organization, when you're past replatforming and refactoring and all the, you know, evolution work, you really want to stabilize somewhere where your tech work and the maintenance work is under 30%. That's what I've seen be common in a healthy organization. Now, of course, there are like moments when you're embarking into a pretty big refactoring or tech effort where you're going to be in a, in a different balance. But what I'm striving to be is like really under 30%. One element I wanted to ask you about specifically was Calibra's new product introduction process. Can you tell us a little bit more uh, about what that is and how that impacts kind of the the R&D space? So that's actually a very interesting process. And I, I coincidentally had a conversation on this one with some folks recently. It's not really common to have an NPI process for a company of our size. It's typically something that you see when you're past 1 billion in ARR, because that's when you really need to be a lot more structured and you have verticalization and different business challenges. We are very data-driven at Colibra and we have the tools to really make being data-driven easier. New product introduction, it's really a process that allows us to iterate quickly and, and fail fast on all kinds of ideas. And it was the middle ground between that entrepreneurial mindset where you had all kinds of ideas come really quickly and get implemented and get put in production. And then you figure out after if someone will want it or is willing to pay for it to have that a little bit early. So you iterate, you come up with the recommendation, you build a business case, there is a little bit of market research. And when you actually have a plan, who wants it, how much you're going to charge for it, how much is going to cost, what's the effort, that's when you start working on it. And then there are all kinds of gates through the process to ensure that, you know, you, you have an enablement plan, that you've thought about security, that you've thought about various aspects that are specific to SaaS, that when it's done, you have a rollout plan and you plan hypercare and whatnot. It's really very sophisticated for a company of our size and something that we're very proud of and has definitely helped with a lot when it comes to discipline, but also when it comes to being a efficient and investing in areas that we know are going to pay off. What questions in that process have you found to be most helpful for your teams as they're going through like the MPI process? Like are there certain parts of that framework that have helped them think through problems more efficiently? There are two types of questions that we weren't asking enough before introducing the NPI process. One was, is this idea truly our customer base? And who wants it and how much they want it? 
and how much they are willing to pay for it. So asking those questions before is definitely helping with funding a project and also having those metrics that I was mentioning earlier that you want to check after the fact. Another one was really around cost of ownership. And and that's more around the on-prem to SaaS transformation of Culebra, where that part of thinking how much this is going to cost to host and support and operate and run wasn't necessarily something that was natural as we were looking at projects and as we were vetting them and, and really saying go. And that's another part that has been pretty game changer for us to think up front and have an opinion or an estimate of the cost of ownership. Two really great questions. I think, yeah, like you said, probably don't get asked frequently enough in different stage organizations. Madalena, to wrap up our conversation together, we've got a couple rapid fire questions. Are you ready to dive in? Sure. Awesome. What are you reading or listening to right now? So I'm the kind of person that has four, five, six, seven, many, many, many books running at the same time from, you know, technical books and self-help books and the book that I'm reading with my teenager because we still read together. The book that I just finished is the one that comes to mind. And that's Clara and the Sun. I'm still processing. And when you're asking me what I'm reading, I finished it, but I'm still thinking about it. That's a great, a great recommendation. What's the book that you're reading with your teenager? Uh, we are actually reading Finding Alaska. Not many folks mention like some of the books that they're reading with their children. So we have a lot of folks that are parents. And so I also think the practice of of reading with, you know, she's almost 15. So we're in the young adult part of it. It's. uh, I think that's so cool. Like the shared experience of of reading with your young adult, like, because like those, I don't know, some of those books were so formative for me. Like when I was a young adult reading some of those books, like were so formative to, you know, how I kind of related to myself. So I think that's really special. I, I think both of us have such great memories of reading Harry Potter together. And sometimes we feel it's like, we want that experience back. So she allows me to read with her or to read to her from time to time. And that's the one we're reading now. That's really special. Next question. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? This is going to be really, really boring, but I would say agile. I'm going to date myself here a bit, but when I started doing engineering, we were all waterfall and it was all monolith. And it's a little bit of chicken and the egg. I'm not sure if agile and service-oriented architecture is what changed me and maybe made me who I am, or I'm so supportive of that because that's how I naturally operate. But I would say that agile, like moving from waterfall to agile and moving from monolithical architecture to service-oriented architecture has been the most transformative for me personally. That's great. What's a trend that you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? So it's very, very related to Colibra's business and data intelligence business. And that's something that I'm keeping a close eye on. I don't know if you're familiar with Data Mesh. When you're thinking about uh, understanding data and cataloging and managing data, there's been a lot over the last few decades from data warehouses to data lakes. And the latest trend that is really picking up and I think is where the industry is going and where we'll end up is Data Mesh. And this idea that you want to empower data owners and SMEs to expose their data as product and to govern it, and you just offer them a shared framework. And for me, this sounds so much like the service-oriented architecture and what microservices were for software engineering, and I'm, I'm really excited to see where, where that goes, and that's something we are looking really closely. Another trend that I think is going to be super important for all of us is AI governance. AI is becoming such a big part of our lives in all kinds of places. And there is this reality that the underlying data for all those models makes a huge difference in how AI responds or interacts. And sometimes you could have unexpected results if you're not really clear about data origin or data quality. And that's another trend that it's starting to pick up that I'm, I'm keeping an eye on. 
Really, really exciting. We we had a conversation with somebody earlier this week talking about AI as it relates to patents. And so this it seems to be kind of like a really converging trend across a lot of different areas and how how important that is. So been a lot in the AI in the last few months. So not surprising. Last question to, to wrap us up, Madalena. Is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? So there is this quote that has been with me for a long time. I, I was even thinking about it when you were asking me earlier, Jerry, about how do you stay patient and you continue. And for me, when it's hard and I feel that I'm on the verge of giving up or I feel like I'm running out of energy or I'm sick, okay, maybe this is as far as I will ever get. I'm, I'm reminded of this quote from uh, Gataka. Gataka is a science fiction movie from 97. In that future, uh, most children are genetically selected to inherit the best features of their parents. And naturally born children are obviously, you know, not as capable or seen as good as those who had all their imperfections removed genetically. And um, in, in this movie, the hero uh, wants to be an astronaut. And that's something that is not exactly available to someone who is seen as a defect. Ultimately, he succeeds in, in achieving that dream. And there is this conversation with his sibling that is superior about how you've managed to achieve this goal. And it was something like, I never saved anything for the swim back. I just kept going. And and that's kind of how I think about it. When I'm committed, I just go. And I don't worry if I have the energy to come back because going back is not an option. I'm just going for it. That's a really powerful quote. I have seen Gattaca and I vividly remember the, that scene that you are referencing. Two of them are swimming and the superior one is expected to win. It's expected to be the one that goes much, much further than the brother that is seen as weak. And that's not the case. I'm so glad you talk about this because one curious question I have in my mind, but I don't have time to ask. One thing really unique about you is uh, being relentless and how that matters, how that reflects in terms of how you were able to navigate from where you were to like navigating a large project at Calibrium. So it was curious how that came about. And the code you mentioned and the, the scene is a very good explanation of uh, what made, made you relentless. It's not a difficult question for me. I know exactly how that happened. I was a precocious child and I was told very early on in my childhood that I'm special, that I'm going to do great things in life. And I heard it so many times, I felt like I really have a responsibility. Like at some point, it was very difficult for me to know what I want and what is expected from me. And I uh, I made a decision early on that I'm going to do my very, very best, that I'm going to go as far as I can go without compromising my principles. And that's what I've done all along. When someone asks me, what do you want to do in five years? It's like, I want to go as far as I can go without compromising my principles. And that keeps me going, forward only. A powerful close. Madalena, covering everything from scaling to efficiency, process change, and the pursuit and the origins behind being relentless. Thank you so much for your stories, your time, and, and helping us navigate the world of engineering leadership. We really appreciate it. Thank you both. This has been a great hour. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.